This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. Thanks uh, for having us. So I'm Edwin Alvarez. I'm here with Jocelyn Chapman. Uh, today we're talking about winning the war on women's cancer. This is a uh, the title of today's talk is gynecologic cancer treatment. So in the next hour to hour and a half, we're going to talk about all of the treatment in gynonc, which only took us about what seven years to get through <laughs> training. Um, obviously, we can't talk about every single detail. Um, so my talk is going to be pretty heavy on kind of philosophical challenges uh, that we go through. Um, so this is uh, the fifth of the six-week uh, course agenda. So again, this is gynecologic cancer treatment. So, again, I'm going to be talking about philosophies and the way we treat folks. Um, this was never taught to us in a classroom. This was not taught in a lecture series or in a, you know, read in a book. Um, these are kind of uh, distillations of uh, some of the things that we hold important. And I really... What we grapple with on a daily basis when we, um, when we advise folks and we give recommendations and we think about what to do for our patients. Um, it's kind of an outline, so we're going to talk about what, why, or why, what, who, when. We're going to talk about a toolkit and then briefly um, touch on uh, risks versus harm. So why do we treat? Um, you know, the, if we look at this kind of photo as an analogy of uh, uh, we treat to save lives, we treat to get the folks who are on this boat to uh, to safe harbor or to uh, uh, to back home with their families. Um, it's it's um, it's kind of a, a powerful uh, uh, metaphor, I guess. Um, but but this is one way of thinking about why we treat. And certainly, uh, classically and actually now, we, we, we make numbers, we measure, you know, can we extend life? Can we improve the quality of life for women with gynecologic malignancies? Can we maintain their quality of life for as long as possible? Uh, these are really uh, the basic questions in treatment of gynecologic cancers. Um, but the problem with with the words around winning the war or, or the, the photograph I showed you of the, of the boat in distress is that it turns this war on cancer into a win or lose proposition. And um, sure, I love to think of myself going into the OR astride my lion and, you know, holding my sword or, or maybe two swords, um, you know, with a, with a suit of armor. Um, uh, or maybe to take it in a non-testosterone-driven way, you know, to be mama bear protecting the cubs. Um, you know, we, we certainly think of that. But, but on the other hand, it's not a plus-minus game. It's not a, a win or lose. Um, I see my job as, as, as a given hope. And that's what, what I try to do on a daily basis. And, and I'll talk a little bit about what that means and, you know, and, and about the tools and, of course, of, of, of how we do that. Um, so, so, so hope has many forms. You know, th this photograph, I guess, could be a metaphor of new life or, or renewal after a, looks like a cold winter with summer after that. I don't know. Um, but but uh, at any rate, um, hope has many forms. Um, uh, life is among them. Um, we, we, we look for the silver lining in the clouds, and we know that the storm, after storms, um, um, th things pass and things can be better. Certainly, we all have stories of, of, of patients who um, have had renewed 
strengthened relationships, and it's our relationships that are so vital. Um, they're, they're renewed, strengthened relationships come about because of their battles with cancer and realization of what things are really important. Um, so we can see that there are many different forms of hope. Um, we want to help people find a safe harbor from the storm. So the, the storm can be the emotional storm of knowing a new cancer diagnosis um, and dealing with that and coming to a pace, place of peace. Um, so, so this is kind of another analogy um, of, what, of what we do. And importantly, hope changes. Um, so not only are we hoping to extend life, but we're hoping for uh, dignity and peace and even uh, freedom from pain. Um, and this is uh, kind of illustrated with this picture of the sunset, of a peaceful sunset. And, and that's really an important uh, concept when we, um, when we talk to folks at end of, uh, in the end-of-life decision-making. Um, so my kind of philosophy around treatment, I, I, don't, I don't anymore consider myself the warrior going off to battle. I think of it as a guide, and I will tell my patients that I'm going to walk with you on this. Um, it's going to be tough, but we'll walk together. And there's going to be ups and downs, as you can see in this picture in the mountains. Um, there's going to be cuts and bruises and scrapes, and it's going to be tough. Um, but along the way, you're going to see some beautiful things, and you're going to test yourself. And um, that's, that's kind of my, um, my, my philosophy to why we treat. So um, the next question then comes, what or, or who do we treat? So we're gynecologic oncologists. We treat gynecologic cancers. You've had a number of weeks already of these talks. Um, we also, because of our uh, mastery of the pelvis, um, we treat complicated GYN, uh, things like endometriosis and fibroids um, and pelvic infections, um, obstetric hemorrhages, and uh, this is certainly part of our purview. Um, we treat complications from cancer and, and, from, and complications of the treatment of cancer. Uh, that is very important for us. And we also treat cancer pain. And cancer pain comes in many ways. It's not just physical or somatic, but it's also uh, can be emotional, um, spiritual. Um, we're, not, we're not ministers, but still there, I believe that there's important, uh, an important role for that for us. And going back to being masters of the pelvis, I'll just show this slide um, a little bit about some of the anatomy of the sidewall of the pelvis. Not many people like to be here. Uh, this stuff bleeds bad, as you can tell. There's a lot of red in there, and, and that doesn't even show all the veins, so the venous plexus is plexi. Thank you. <laughs> um, but this is, this, is, this is what we do, um, uh, or this is where we, we do our, our best work. Obviously, we work in the entire abdomen um, and we on the vulva and, 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 and things like that, so um, we're not limited to this, but this is really where, where we hold uh, our mastery. So the next question, uh, or this continues, uh, who, who do we who do we treat? And, I, and I, this is the only slide I can find. I'm not going to I'm not going to take any credit for the biosphere, the ecosystem, or the atom. Um, uh, but it's about the only slide that I could find that would take us from kind of that molecular cellular level all the way out to the community. And and I, and I do think that we have a role as G1 oncologists, and certainly as academic G1 oncologists, and, and each of these levels. Um, so from the DNA, as Dr. Chapman is going to 
talk to you a little bit about. Um, there are treatments we have which can manipulate the epigenetics of, uh, of the DNA. There are treatments that can break stand, uh, the strands of DNA um, in, in, in the cancer cells that are most at risk of or, or or uh, I guess um, the synthetic lethality approach you'll talk about. So DNA is certainly something we think about. And this picture just briefly demonstrates, as you guys know, hope, I, I think you know, I don't actually know where we are in terms of bio, biochemistry stuff, but DNA goes basically through the RNA to, to make proteins. And proteins are what make up those those targets in the cell, like the receptors and the tyrosine kinases and the um, um, all those kind of targets that we go after. So we treat the cell. Um, what's the cell? So this is these are this is a picture of a two or of an ovarian cancer that's splitting, um, that's um, dividing. Um, and again, this is an electron micrograph of a, of some ovarian cancer cells. This would be like a um, um, spheroid of ovarian cancer cells, and it's kind of a small picture, but these cells are all covered in um, cilia. Um, this is a little. Uh, Misleading of a picture because the cancer never looks like this. The cancer is in a microenvironment. It's constantly uh, interacting with the supportive structures and the rest of the body uh, through, hormone, through hormones and through direct contact and, and messages uh, or messages that are sent uh, back and forth. This picture is a, a, a photograph of the microenvironment in breast cancer. I looked for one for ovarian, but I thought this was the best I could find. Uh, here is the, in, in the kind of blue-green is the uh, breast cancer. The red is collagen, and the, and the, and the green is uh, invading uh, fibroblasts and uh, in, infiltrating lymphocytes. So you can see that these cancers are really in contact. They don't just sit there... Um, making problems. They, they make problems because they're in contact with the, with the microenvironment. So we treat the microenvironment. We treat the tissue. So the tissue uh, is a collection of cells. So here you can see a hysteroscopy photograph. So this is a camera placed inside the uterus, and that's a photograph of a hyperplastic endometrium. Endometrium is the lining of the uterus. That should be nice and smooth in there, but this patient probably had some bleeding, and, and someone put a camera in there to do some directed biopsies. So we treat the endometrium. We can treat it either surgically or, or, or medically. We treat organs. So what organ do we treat? We treat the uterus and the cervix. So this is a cervical cancer, kind of, as you can, uh, facing you. That's a cervical cancer inside the vaginal margin. Up at top is the, what we call the fundus of the uterus. Now to the sides would be the fallopian tubes and ovaries. And here are the parametria. This is what connects the cervix to the body. Um, this, is where, this is what holds all the lymphatics and the blood vessels. Um, so this was, I think you guys already had a good talk on surgery. So um, uh, this is just kind of bringing that back around. We treat the person, obviously. I don't have any space for more, for more photographs here. So we'll just imagine a person. Um, we treat family members. Um, when we have uh, folks, I'll tell you, my patients who come to the office, they don't come alone. They, they bring their family members. They bring their moms. They bring their, their husbands. They bring their daughters. They bring their, their best friends uh, every time. Um, my patients that I follow every three weeks for years, I know their family members well. Um, so we, so part of uh, the, this cancer treatment is, is palliation and, and kind of just making these relationships with family members. Certainly, um, I'll go back one, certainly um, in, in uh, Dr. Chen's talk on, you did a genetics talk, right? 
uh, that was Dr. Chapman. So, so Dr. Chapman talked about genetics, and, and certainly when we find BRCA mutations or genetic mutations that predispose folks to cancer, um, you know, to helping, helping the rest of the family figure that out, that's part of our job. Um, we treat a community. Um, so how do we do that? Uh, most importantly, through research. Um, our clinical trials and those, those brave women who sign up for them uh, make it so that the next generation will have better outcomes than the generations that, fall, that, that, that preceded them. Um, so, um, of course, also through advocacy and education, we, we treat the community. So when do we treat? Um, there, are, there are a number of uh, kind of clinical points um, that, that our decision-making is, is, is very important. Um, the first step is going to be when there's a uh, suspected cancer. Um, patients will go to their primary care docs or their OBGYNs or show up in an ER, and they'll have pain. A woman might have pain and some bloating, and someone finally gets an ultrasound, maybe after she's already gone to the gastroenterologist and already had a, a colonoscopy, but finally somebody thinks of looking at the ovaries, and they get this ultrasound, and they, and they see this complex mass. So you got this area, which is the black is fluid. That's kind of that, that's the cystic part of the mass, and then you can see these kind of septations going through these kind of thick pieces. So that's a complex mass. Um, over on panel B, this is a liver with ascites next to it. Uh, so the belly's full of, of fluid, and so this would be a patient we suspect has an ovarian cancer. That's who we take to the operating room. Um, diagnose cancer certainly once somebody else makes a diagnosis or we do certainly we take care of those folks this is an ovarian cancer histology slide so once we get out the tumor or we do a biopsy through the belly um, the, the, the pathologist will take a look and give us a diagnosis this is a papillary uh, squamous uh, uh, a pap serous I'm sorry pap serous ovarian cancer sorry about that um, we follow folks along, and we uh, diagnose a recurrence. So um, here's a PET scan for a woman with ovarian cancer who was found to have multiple spots in her liver, as you can see here. Those, those should not be there. Um, and on cross-section, you can see some, other, some of these um, uh, recurrences that are evident on PET scan. Um, at palliation, we, we, we treat folks uh, to palliate their symptoms to help improve and, and, and maintain their quality of life. This is another very important phase in the treatment of cancer. Importantly, palliation doesn't just start one day. It should come in from the beginning, and you're going to have another great talk next week, next week or two weeks next week about palliation, palliation and survivorship. And um, so um, palliation, as I think about, about it, is something that starts off kind of taking up a small percentage of the treatment and by the end takes up most of the percentage of the treatment. Um, so that's something that we are very involved with. Um, so what's our toolkit? Um, I didn't want to find a toolkit with, like, pliers. <laughs> Every toolkit on Google has pliers. Um, anyway, I, I was happy to have found this one. Um, so our toolkit, as, as uh, Dr. Chapman is going to get into, um, and, and uh, really are the foundational parts of, of gene oncology, and what we spend all our time training about is the surgery, the chemotherapy, and the radiation. These are the, these are the, the big heavies, right? These, um, we, we consider ourselves surgeons and, chemo, and, and chemotherapists. Um, many, there are many gynecologic oncologists out there who don't do chemotherapy, yet this is an important part of, of gene oncology treatment. Um, we don't give radiation ourselves, as you've already, I think, you've heard, or you will be hearing, uh, radiation oncologists do that. Uh, but we work in very close collaboration with the radiation oncologist to deliver radiation. Um, 
an next set of toolkits, uh, and this could you could think about this being under the chemotherapy subheading, but I think this is really changing. Um, the biologics, so the targeted therapies, which include hormonal therapies. Um, this is a very important part of our toolkit. Immune modulation, which uh, you've all have heard, this is the hot topic, the immune therapies. This falls under the biologics for me or under the targeted therapies, um, but it certainly is another strategy for, for fighting cancer and one that is um, poised to really take prominence um, in, in, in many areas of cancer treatment. Our toolkit has a doctor-patient relationship. Hopefully this one's out from the very beginning. Um, and and it, and and there's a two-way street. You got to find a doctor that's the kind of right for you. Um, but uh, but I, but this is a really important part. You know, this whole laying on of hands and and um, talking about options. You know, telling folks when there aren't any left uh, as far as treatment are concerned, but there's still hope. All these pieces are an important part of the doctor-patient um, relationship and an important part of the treatment of cancer. And then again, back to advocacy and education. So who do we educate? Well, we were educating the next generation of G1 oncologists, the next OBGYNs. You know, we're, we're teaching how to do the lymph nodes so they can go do it alone in, in some hospital in, I don't know, Alaska. Maybe not that one. But, um, but um, um, education is big. We educate our patients. Um, we do courses in the community. I guess this would count. Um, advocacy, um, whether it be political or, or through fundraising um, or through um, uh, the systems that be at San Francisco General, Zuckerberg San Francisco General, and trying to get uh, coverage and plans in place and instruments that we need and so on and so forth. Um, so the, this is really part of our toolkit. And then again, uh, research. I already, I already mentioned this, but but I just I want to emphasize how important and how central this is uh, to our to our roles as GUN oncologists. Uh, we have to continue moving forward. Um, we cannot rest on perfecting yesterday's standards. Uh, we need to keep making new ones through um, and uh, um, through through research. So now a, a, a brief um, uh, discussion of risk versus harm. And, and no treatment talk is complete without at least briefly addressing this. Risk versus harm changes throughout the, 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 the course of a patient's uh, life and, of course, certainly through their, the course of their cancer uh, treatment. Um, early on, there's a big benefit to surgery for ovarian cancer. But if someone's had five recurrences and they have carcinomatosis or their belly's filled with, can- filled with cancer and it's a cancer that's no longer responding to chemo, that risk goes way, or that benefit goes way, way down. That's no longer, you're not going to benefit this patient by trying to open up and take that stuff out. So you're going to risk um, um, harming her badly, uh, leading to long times in the hospital, uh, surgical complications, having to go to a sniff, so on and so forth. So this is really an illustration of, of, of how you have to weigh risks and benefits at every, at every step. Um, other, other ways of thinking about this are that women will um, or we have to consider uh, what risks you're willing to tolerate. So very similar to the first analogy, um, you may think that a chemotherapy that causes hair loss and neuropathy, which is one of our uh, things that we see quite commonly in the, can- in the cancer treatments we give, um, if it buys you three months, um, are you going to take that and have a nausea and vomiting or having to be in the hospital every week uh, overnight for an inpatient infusion or something like that. Are you going to take that if it adds three months to your life? And, 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 and 
what if it adds three years to your life? So, so these, these questions really change. Early on, the answer might be one, and later, when you have six months of life left to live, maybe you don't want to spend them in the hospital. Um, so, so risks versus benefits is an important discussion. And I, and I love this picture. Um, you know, we, we, we try to minimize risks. You know, we, we, um, in the surgery, we give antibiotics to decrease the risk of infection. We obviously scrub down and everything's sterile. And we have negative or positive negative flow ventilation in the room. I don't even know. The, the air blows out instead of into the room um, and gets filtered. We, we, um, uh, we, we give a shot to decrease the risk of blood clots. It happens because of, can, uh, because of cancer surgery and just surgery in general. Um, so we do all these things to minimize risk, yet this guy, he's still going to play football, right? He's, it, it's, there's still going to be some other guys, 300 pounds, rushing at him is going to hit him hard. So, so there's still risks, and, and, and one has to be quite clear about them about every step. And, and it may not be um, on the receiving end for folks who are about to go through surgery. They may not uh, quite understand them, but we still have to talk about them. And then it's our job to try and minimize those risks as much as possible. So I think with that, I'm a little bit early, but I'm going to um, turn over unless we want to do, wanna do a, ask questions. We could do a couple of minutes because I'm, I'm a bit early. Do you have any, any, if there's anybody, any questions at this point? UCSF, of course, you have research and teaching and also treating patients. A very important part of all this is the patient. Do you spend time with the patient so that they can be a partner in this and educated? The reason I ask, in my own family, we had a glioblastoma that was terminal. And in the, the way we got through it was, I mean, the way our family benefited the most was by learning as much as we could about that. So the doctor was not in the position of having to do all these high-pressure decision-making. We did it as much as we could on our own. Right. Are you able to involve your patients in that in the process? Yeah, you know, and I... Absolutely, um, and and I you know I, I guess the, really the point of view here that I've been talking about is that these are these are questions that we struggle with with the patient. And if you go back to the slide where I put the guidance philosophy, um, this this is done together. This is not me going into battle alone and and you know and fighting cancer and 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 then well uh, here's what I recommend and that's what I'm going to do and that's that. It's this is something chosen together. When I talk about risk versus benefits, this is a discussion. Um, you know, when I follow women for ovarian cancer, I see them every three weeks for their chemotherapy for years. Um, so, yeah, this is the, absolutely you involve the patient. There's no, um, there's no way around that one, absolutely, for us. Yeah. So just a comment. So I'm a ovarian cancer survivor, and I remember that first conversation with my UN oncologist, and um, when I actually hadn't been told at that point that I had advanced ovarian cancer, but it became increasingly obvious during the conversation. And right. I just remember being, I'm going to use the word, bombarded, bombarded by choice. Yes. Do you want surgery first, and then chemotherapy, and then surgery, and you do that in Europe, but then you might do otherwise. Yes. And, and at that point, I was not capable of making a choice. Yes. And I went and, and talked to family members, and ultimately what it came down to was asking um, you're an oncologist, if I was your sister, yep. what would you recommend? Right. I had to make it in some sort of terminology. So I... You're right. You're absolutely right. No, and you, you really, um, you, this is a big deal. 
Um, you know, we, 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 we try to learn about non-paternalistic right, uh, methods of, of treating and, and, and patient autonomy is very important to us. Um, yet, we're the ones that see 15 to 20 patients a day with, the, with, with cancer. While a, per, a woman who comes to us, this is her first time. So we, we have recommendations and should be giving them. It's something you do together, but at some point you got to say, I recommend surgery. This is the best way forward. You have to determine what's, what's in the patient's best interest what's, by what they say, like it, what is important to you, and then go from there. But it is, it is, it is my duty as a G1 oncologist to give a recommendation at each one of these points. Um, that goes back to the, uh, you know, those first slides again um, with the uh, bear with the cub on the back. Sometimes you got to do that. Um, sometimes you have to take folks through. Um, but, but there are some people who, who, who you can't. You have to, you, 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 some people need to have a choice. So, so you have to feel that out. And that's, again, part of that two-way street, that doctor-patient relationship. And, and, and sometimes people have to be told that they need to. Understanding your reasoning and your decision-making is helpful. Yeah. But even when we can't, you Agreed. Anyone else? I'm just curious, because UCSF is a research institution, how much uh, does the decision have to do with clinical trials that are available here? Yeah. Um, so, so. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be repeating the question. Um, so, the, so, so we have here at UCSF um, a lot of research, and so, and then I believe the question is, how do how are our decisions influenced by the clinical trials that are available? Well, ab- absolutely. There's there's um, um, boundaries on on what we can do, and we we offer what we have available. Um, my job is to try and increase our clinical trials portfolio. And that's what I've been brought here to do and to try and make it a nice rounded portfolio so that we can offer many patients um, options. Um, and then there's a balance in, in terms of um, uh, cost. So it's very expensive to have clinical trials open. And if we could have one trial for everybody, that's fantastic. But, it w- but unfortunately, our, our system won't allow us to do it because, because of the cost. We, it's, it's, it's too large of a burden. Um, so we have to choose kind of wisely. How do we help the most patients? How, what are the most important clinical questions we can ask right now? Are those drugs available to us? So, so, and this is something that's a com- uh, ever-changing landscape. These, as new discoveries are made, and they in melanoma, well, we want to try that too in our in our in, in our in our site. So, so this is a dynamic process. Anybody else? All right. With that, then I'll hand you over to Dr. Chapman. And um, maybe just to round out a little bit the answer about the clinical trials, because Dr. Alvarez was talking about um, how what clinical trials we think about offering, and that's a decision that we as juvenile oncologists make with whatever resources we have allocated. But when we're thinking about, when we're discussing the clinical trials with patients, um, we... Um, Usually, clinical trials enter into decision to, to as options for patients in a situation where we don't know the right thing to do, and it's not that 
um, that we actually go through a lot of training related to clinical trials about ethics in clinical trials. So if I know that there's a very good treatment that might cure somebody or might cure 30% of patients who receive it, and I give someone a completely and totally investigational agent, then I'm actually not being very, and I don't tell my patient about that, then that's a completely unethical thing to do. So there's a big discussion when we're talking about clinical trials with patients um, as to standard treatments that might be available um, for them. And, um, of course, clinical trials, uh, the way they're designed these days, are specifically designed to help um, prevent unethical types of questions. And so um, superior treatments are offered first or time-tested treatments are offered first. And when those fail, um, we offer investigational agents. Or sometimes the investigational agents are added to the time-tested treatments um, uh, to see if we can do better than, say, 30% survival or something like that. So um, that just rounds out that discussion of clinical trials a little bit. Yes? So you just improved that 30%. Is that still the survival rate? I was actually pulling a number completely out of thin air. <laughs> I just used an example. If we had a treatment that we knew cured 30% of people and we wanted to improve on that, one way we, that we might try to um, ask that question in the clinical trial was, well, let's give an additional drug to what we've already know does um, cure 30% and see if we can't improve the numbers. Um, but yeah, I didn't choose a number in particular. <laughs> okay, so um, Dr. Alvarez has set me up very nicely in sort of the philosophical way. Um, you get a nice picture of how Juan oncologists um, think about our treatments in the context of the patient and the family and the communities that they live in. Um, and I'm going to dive in a little bit more specifically into the treatments that we do use um, and how they work, um, what some of the side effects are, uh, what some of the logistical considerations are, just to paint a picture of um, what um, not only we learn as GUN oncologists and what you might learn today about how drugs work or how radiation works, but also the considerations that patients and their families have as they're thinking about the logistics of these treatments. Um, and uh, so hopefully that will help round out your picture of how, um, how we uh, have uh, what our treatments are for gynecologic cancers. Um, so uh, we're surgeons. We're trained in surgery. And um, I know you had a whole nice talk on uh, from Dr. Oweda and Dr. Chen on surgery. So we'll skip that one today. Um, and I'll focus on radiation, cytotel, which is uh, um, ionizing radiation, external beam radiation, um, uh, which is a primary treatment that we use for cervical cancer and vulvar cancers. Um, turns out those HPV-related diseases that Dr. Smith-McCune talked about are very sensitive to radiation. Um, and so we'll go into that uh, a bit. And then cytotoxic chemotherapy. Cytotoxic is a word that means uh, toxic to cells. Um, and uh, that is given systemically into the vein, into the venous system. Um, and there's... Um, uh, the cytotoxic chemotherapy, for example, is used primarily in, um, uh, well, it's actually used in all three of our cancers to a certain degree, but it, uh, we think about it in the context of ovarian cancer, which is one of our most exquisitely sensitive to chemotherapy type treatments, or it can be. Um, and then um, newer agents, targeted treatments, um, 
We're going to talk about agents that inhibit blood vessels. Um, there's a drug called bevacizumab. Uh, it's also called Avastin, which is its trade name, but I'm going to call it by bevacizumab because that's good, that's good practice and, and talks to use that. But it's a hard word to say, bevacizumab. Um, that inhibits blood vessels um, to tumors. It's called angiogenesis. One of the things that I talked about... Um, at the very beginning, when we were talking about cancer and how it develops and the things that cells need to do in order to become cancerous is they need to grow their own blood supply because that's how those tumor cells that have escaped um, uh, from the primary organ and say metastasize, that's how they actually are going to get their food is to grow their own blood supply. If they can't do that, they can't then survive and be a cancer cell. Um, so one of the things that has come out in the last 10 years, maybe a little bit more now, 15, um, has been um, a drug that specifically inhibits cells from developing their own blood supply. Um, and that's our agent bevacizumab. And then there are agents that take advantage of damaged genes in cancer. So this is the concept of synthetic lethality, which um, Dr. Alvarez uh, set me up for, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more in depth about that. And then finally, immunotherapy, which is um, uh, all the rage these days, and I think has um, uh, probably a very exciting role in treating cancers. Um, and uh, we'll touch on uh, on that in a, at the end. So radiation. How does radiation work? Well, it's external beams. Um, it is... Um, Radiation can be um, useful diagnostically in a lot of situations. Diagnostically, I mean to make a diagnosis. When you get a chest x-ray, you're getting a small amount of radiation. When you get a CT scan, you're getting slightly more radiation. Um, if you happen to be too close to an atomic bomb, you're getting a lot of radiation that can make you very, very sick. So radiation is... Um, um, energy that is delivered from a source, and um, depending on the properties of that energy, it can kill or damage cells in the process. If the level of radiation is very low, um, then it does very little to the cells. For example, I think I heard that taking six plane flights across you know, transatlantic plane flights is um, equivalent to one CT scan. So, um, so we're exposed in our in our in our universe in our environment to low levels of radiation every day that do very little to no detectable harm. That um, uh, on a population level, um, but we use much higher doses of this exact same kind of radiation, um, but not too high to um, actually kill cancer cells. Um, and so this bed there is a bed where a patient lays. Um, there are some, if you Google this on your Google images, you will find some scary pictures um, of patients who are immobilized in certain ways, and especially for some head and neck type cancers. You want to make sure that um, actually you get patients get a mold that is specifically made to their face that they receive that they put on every single day to get their 15 minutes of radiation dose um, so that every single day the radiation oncology doctors are sure that they're giving radiation to exactly the spot that they want in gynecologic cancers people get tattoos um, they get a little 
dot tattooed on their body so that the um, every single day when they go for their small amount of radiation dose, um, they, uh, the radiation oncologists know that they're giving it exactly where they wanted it. Um, and I'm going to go into a little bit about how radiation is given and planned, but as a general um, rule, you would not give someone a full radiation dose on a single day because you would cause a lot of damage to their tissue. The way you prevent damage to normal tissue is you spread the radiation dose out through the course of weeks, and you give them a small bit of radiation every single day. And what that allows is that allows for the normal tissues to repair. Normal tissues will get affected by radiation, but they're just better at repairing themselves than our cancer cells. The cancer cells then... um, will attempt to repair themselves, but what actually happens is more of them enter the cell cycle and expose their DNA to the damaging radiation and then are killed in the process of receiving the radiation. So radiation, as I've, um, as I've uh, alluded to so far, directly damages DNA. Um, and so um, it... This is kind of a picture of DNA and how these high-energy beams are directed into the cells, and um, they can directly damage the DNA. They can also indirectly damage the DNA by causing free radicals, um, which is uh, changes in the environment in the cell. We all hear about free radicals and antioxidants and things like that, and those words stop meaning something, but actually they do mean something. Um, Those uh, free radicals in cells are damaging to DNA, and that's a secondary way that radiation can cause damage to, um, to DNA. In the end, when you've damaged your DNA sufficiently, um, you enter the uh, you enter an apoptotic state, and I think you guys might remember that word from way back when I talked about how cells can commit suicide. Um, that's essentially what apoptosis is: is it's a um, way for um, s- cells that have become severely damaged to. Uh, then die off. And um, so radiation takes advantage of those properties of cells. Um, I thought this slide was, uh, this map was really cool because um, this shows the availability of radiation therapy in the world. So the green is, um, so this is the number of radiotherapy machines per million people. And the numbers at the bottom are a little bit hard to read, but... um, The green is um, five and more uh, radiation machines per million people. And the red is very bad, no machines at all. Um, And um, no machines at all in uh, sub-Saharan Africa is um, a really big problem, just speaking a little bit to advocacy for our patients, is a really big problem because I said before that radiation is one of the best tools in our toolkit for treatment of cervical cancer. And cervical cancer is a third world country, um, has the highest burden of disease. They don't have pap smears the way Dr. Smith McKeon was talking about. They do not have, they certainly do not have vaccines to prevent uh, cervical cancer. So, um, so women who are in those areas where there are zero radiation machines have no options for treatment except to hopefully be wealthy enough to travel to a nearby country. 
Um, and that's something that our department is actually um, very involved with because we do, Dr. Oweda does go to Uganda um, and is working at training GUN oncologists in, uh, in Uganda and helping to um, improve the delivery of care in, um, in, in that area, which is a, a huge a huge the important thing in the treatment of cervical cancer. So um, we think about the problems in the United States quite a lot, and we're talking a lot about those, and that's um, a big part of our training. But um, worldwide, it's important to think about the burden of that disease in particular. Um, so I thought I would just highlight that for you. Um, so back to this picture briefly. So external beam. This is a patient lays on this table. They are... Um, uh, there are planning CT scans that are done by the radiation oncologist where they identify the location of the tumor. They use the bony pelvis uh, a lot of times as their landmarks. Um, there's um, some physics involved now. They do these fancy confirmational things where they're not just uh, delivering x-rays to a certain box uh, where the cervix is kind of generally located, but they um, actually outline the dimensions of the tumor itself in a three-dimensional space and target the radiation to that three-dimensional space. Um, so that's something that's done externally. Um, and a patient will lay on a table like this for about 15 minutes every day for five to six weeks. Um, when she will receive the bulk of her treatment that way. Um, she receives her treatment Monday through Friday. Uh, radiation, cancer cells don't grow on the weekends, as you know. <laughs> I'm kidding. Radiation oncologists don't work on the weekends. Um, but turns out that does not affect their, uh, in any way, affect their um, opt optimal treatment. So that's external beam. Now, internal beam, I couldn't find, there's a lot of kind of, um, terrible pictures out there, but this one is not too bad. So internal, so as Dr. Smith McCune, I hope impressed upon you, the cervix is a really interesting organ because we can see it when we do a pap smear. Um, it is an internal organ in that we can't see it if we just look at a person's body. Um, but if we put a speculum, a little small, relatively non-invasive tool in there, we can see the cervix. And um, I know you guys... Um, saw pictures, uh, we showed you pictures of cervical cancer and what that looks like when you're looking with the speculum. Um, so that provides us the opportunity with delivering radiation directly to the tumor. And this is something that is called uh, brachytherapy. Um, and the applicators for brachytherapy, there are lots of different kinds, but this is just a general schematic of how um, uh, of what happens. So in this type of treatment, the radiation oncologist takes the patient to the operating room. Um, they're given uh, some uh, anesthesia in their back, so they're actually generally awake, but they're comfortable and they don't feel pain. Um, the cervix itself is dilated and opened up to accommodate this um, applicator. Um, and the applicator is placed into the uterus. The radiation oncologist a lot of times uses ultrasound to help kind of guide the placement of, um, of some wires directly into the tumor area. Um, and then the patient is taken out of the operating room, brought down to the radiation suite, and radiation is delivered directly to the tumor itself. Um, and I'll take a question. Yes? You said wires, so is this microwave or is it different kind of no, um, they are, uh, let's see, when, I, when I'm referring to wires, what's the best way to explain them? They're, um, um, I've seen... Like antenna, which is... No, no. 
it's right. It's an isotope. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Okay, so just to repeat the question for the, so they were curious about the wires, and the wires are uh, delivering actually radioisotopes directly to the tumor bed. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Why is it that when you go through radiation, that is a great question, and you are setting me up well, because I'm going to talk about radiation side effects in just a minute. But we promise we will get to why radiation makes people feel very tired. Um, so this is kind of a brachytherapy uh, treatment schematic. So um, it usually happens after external beam, but there are some protocols that incorporate the brachytherapy to um, the uh, in-between the external beam regimen. But for the course of, you know, for the, for the situation today, we'll just talk about it as though it's given afterwards. So you finish your five to six weeks of external beam radiation, and then the uh, radiation oncologist will do a clinical exam to determine how much, if any, tumor is left. Um, and also usually does some CT scans. Sometimes uh, ultrasound is all that's needed to kind of locate the, the residual area of tumor. And then those uh, brachytherapy source applicators are placed in the body, usually in the uh, operating room, as I discussed. Um, they oftentimes will do other imaging um, to just make sure that they've placed the applicators exactly where they want them. Um, and then um, the radioactive sources are delivered directly to the treatment site. And this is usually done somewhere between three to five times for cervical cancer anyways. Yes? Every time it's done, they have to you have to the Good question. So what the way that brachytherapy is delivered here at UCSF, and there are various kinds of strategies for doing this, but the way that it tends to be done here is the if you come in on a Monday and you go to the operating room and the, and the um, applicators are placed and the um, uh, treatment is given that afternoon, you keep the patient will keep the epidural in their spine and stay until the next morning when a second treatment is done. And then the epidural, which is their anesthetic, is removed. They go home, and they come back the next week or two weeks later and do the same thing again. So in our cases, for most cervical cancers, they tend to get four brachytherapy treatments. Yes? So once you've radiated the tumor, what happens physically to the cells and what was the in most cases, they disappear, um, which is to say that a lot of times, especially the younger the patient, um, the better the reparative processes are in the cells around, the normal cells around the tumor. And when we examine them, when they are done with their treatment, things look reasonably normal. There's some fibrosis and scarring. Um, sometimes the cervix gets obliterated or kind of flattened up to the top of the vaginal apex, so some of the architecture is lost because of the um, surrounding tissue having been damaged also by radiation. Um, sometimes, especially in our older patients who um, their reparative processes sometimes are, are not quite as robust as our younger patients, um, they have quite a lot of fibrosis and scarring, so it becomes um, very difficult to see any normal cervix anymore. Um, usually on a vaginal rectal examination, you can still feel a uterus kind of at the top uh, in the vaginal cuff, but the tissue will feel slightly thickened. It tends to be the most common physical exam finding, I would say. But it doesn't, the tumor goes away, and you don't see any cancer anymore. So the body is absorbing. 
and the body absorbs the nucleotides, the proteins, all of that stuff gets absorbed, reused, or um, excreted in our in our um, kidney and liver, our main excretion sources. Yes, ma'am. When the so the applicators, I guess, are applied to the tumor sites, do they contain the radiation themselves, or are they connected to something else? It's a good question. So this is something um, that radiation. So the question is: Do the radiation applicators are they radioactive themselves, or are they connected to a radioactive source? And the answer is they're connected to a radioactive source. It's one of the th- after the fact. So it's one of the things that radiation oncologists, um, you know, when they're thinking about these things, they are ex- they themselves do not want to be exposed to the same level of radiation that the patient is receiving, and so um, these rooms are leaded and protected um, from exposing all of the personnel who work in radiation oncology to you know, treatment doses of radiation. So in the operating room, there's no radiation given. They're brought down to the radiation oncology suite where the, um, the protections exist to prevent, uh, to, so that the radiation is just delivered to where it's designed. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So the question is, is radiation given only the first time it's detected and not in a reoccurrence setting? Radiation is considered as one of the tools in our toolkit at lots of different times in people's treatments. Sometimes in cervical cancer, as an example, um, we plan our our primary treatment is surgery um, because it's a small cancer and... um, Based on the surgery, uh, based on the examination, we think surgery is the most appropriate thing. Once in a while, even for early-stage cancer, cervical cancer, it can come back at the top of the vagina or elsewhere. And a lot of times at that time, we consider radiation treatment in order to help um, treat that recurrent cancer. It's also true that, say, for uterine cancer, radiation is used quite a lot, um, and sometimes radiation is given right after surgery for uterine cancer, but a lot of times it's not given until, unless um, an, a, a recurrence happens, at which point then radiation is given. So, um, And then even thinking about ovarian cancer, there are certain kinds of ovarian cancer or certain circumstances in ovarian cancer where a targeted approach like radiation is very useful. I've described here external beam with the pelvis and brachytherapy with the applicators directly in the cervix. But the radiation oncologist could give you an entire lecture for hours and hours and hours about the multiple ways that they can deliver radiation, which includes cyber knife, which is kind of how it sounds. It's sort of like using a radiation knife to kind of try to um, target a very small area in the body. Um, There's... um, uh, whole abdominal radiation. There's various ways of delivering radiation in various circumstances, and we consider it in a lot of our cancer scenarios. Yes, sir. On the, on the surrounding cells that don't repair themselves, can that be considered a cause of cancer itself? So you're asking about um, the cells that don't repair themselves. Can that be a cause of cancer itself? You're getting to the point of radiation-induced cancers, which do exist. Um, Thank goodness they are quite rare. Um, But there is um, an association with certain kinds of tumors called sarcomas that can result after radiation treatment. And we uh, think that they are related to the radiation treatment that someone has received in the past. Um, and 
Uh, and so there are secondary malignancies that you can get as a complication of radiation treatment. Not very commonly, but it does happen once in a while. Yes? What about damage to nearby? What about damage to nearby? Nearby tissues. So you've, radiation toxicities, we're here. <laughs> yes, no, I knew this would be of interest to you guys. So, um, um, in the interest of time, I didn't want to um, go too much into There's actually um, a table that is twice this long for late uh, toxicities of radiation. Um, and I know this is small, and you, I think we'll have all of these slides up on your, on your website for you to read them. But I, I will go over these sort of briefly. So early toxicity of radiation are kind of toxicities or side effects that people get while they're receiving the radiation, whereas late toxicities of radiation are things that can happen after the radiation treatment has already been done. And that has to do a little bit with how radiation affects normal tissues. So um, enteri- so the GI system and the hematologic system um, tend to be the things that are affected the most. Um, and getting to the question of why radiation causes people to feel tired, that probably has to do with the fact that um, one of the biggest toxicities is hematologic. So you might wonder, why would the blood system be affected by radiation? Well, Um, our bone marrow is really the source of our white blood cells and our red blood cells, and and those um, replenish, uh, the bone marrow replenishes your blood supplies every, you know, 30 to 90 days, depending on the cell type. And so for, um, and it turns out that a bulk, a huge bulk of people's um, bone marrow is in their hips and in their low back. Um, So any kind of pelvic radiation is going to cause quite a bit of toxicity to the bone marrow in these locations, and therefore patients will become anemic. Um, They will have uh, low white blood cell counts and sometimes low platelet counts as a result of the um, radiation damage to their bone marrow. These are temporary. Um, That's sort of the other thing to mention about early toxicities is they tend to resolve once the treatment has completed. So... um, Another one to mention, because this is um, related to the side effects that we talk about for radiation treatments um, while patients are getting them, is they can get um, uh, GI symptoms. So there's toxicity to that internal lining of people's uh, GI tracts that can cause them to have um, diarrhea, especially when we're thinking about radiation in the pelvis. The colon is our biggest... um, Uh, part of the intestine that is affected by radiation treatments. And so uh, uh, um, uh, diarrhea is a very common complaint during pelvic radiation. Question. Yes, sir. Can probiotics be of any help here? Um, You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure that they are, but do you guys know? Sometimes. Yeah. The bulking agents can also be helpful. Bulking agents, so like Metamucil is a bulking agent or any kind of fiber agent. A probiotic isn't a bulking agent. No, but it... Sort of another matchup that can be used, though. So are yeah. you killing microbes with radiation? Presumably, which... So the question is, are we killing microbes with radiation? Now, your colon is a very large organ, and maybe this much of it um, out of this much of it is being affected by the radiation. So there's um, intestinal flora, uh, intestinal bacteria um, all over the place that is actually entirely out of the radiation field. Um, So um, 
So there is some normal GI flora, but the area that it would be affected might be able to be repopulated with the aid of probiotics is one of the theories. Um, one other radiation toxicity to mention is the dermatologic toxicity. Now, I mentioned that radiation is used to treat vulvar and vaginal cancers. Now, in those cases, the radiation field is no longer the whole external pelvis. The radiation field is really brought down and out um, towards the primary tumor on the skin or in the inside of the vagina. And so that can cause um, some pretty severe um, skin toxicities to the nearby normal skin nearby the, um, the tumor itself. Um, so, um, and then just for the sake of interest, and I'll let you guys read these when you download the slides, there are a lot of treatments that are mentioned here. And in fact, I didn't even check to see if probiotics was on top of, uh, was on this list or not. It doesn't look like it might be. Um, but anyways, there are some, the sort of, um, things to help mostly with symptoms um, and to help support the patient with these uh, side effects as they're getting through their treatment, understanding that once the treatment is done, the side effects will resolve. Um, and because pictures are fun, uh, this is radiation proctitis, um, which is, that's a, I should have shown you a, what a normal picture looks like, um, but uh, this is pretty angry um, intestinal uh, mucosa, and then that black white spot there is actually an ulcer that's formed. An ulcer on the inside of the body looks actually very similar to ulcers on the outside of the body. It's an area that's um, been very severely um, denuded of the cells, of the normal cell layer. Um, and again, these uh, symptoms will resolve the bowel, will heal um, with a cessation of the treatment. Um, like I said, there was an enormous list of late toxicities of radiation, but this is one to mention because it's one that we um, uh, see and I thought might be of interest to you folks. The, this is um, uh, vaginal ne necrosis. So um, while early on we might have some um, uh, angry tissue that will heal itself when radiation is done, um, radiation can sometimes do so much damage to the normal tissue that actually it doesn't anymore have normal blood supply. There is actually an area of tissue that might die. And this is one of the um, feared complications uh, that can happen as a result of too much radiation. As, um, and our radiation doctors can tell you a lot. They think a lot about the uh, therapeutic ratio, which is giving enough to sterilize the tumor and not too much to cause permanent damage to the organs. So I'm going to go on to chemotherapy and how it works. Um, so um, with, when we think about cytotoxic chemotherapy, cytotoxic meaning toxic to the cell, we have to think about the cycle of the cell. The thing that drives our cells to actually be able to regenerate um, is the cell, uh, is illustrated here in the cell cycle. So we can start any place we like in this because it's a circle. Um, uh, but we'll start here where we have a single cell uh, with its nucleus. So this is the nucleus. This is the location where the DNA uh, um uh, sits and um, cells can go into G zero, which is kind of like a resting phase. They're not dead cells; they're just not dividing. Um, and there are signals that tell them to grow. Those are um, 
growth signals in our body, um, and they sort of enter into uh, mitosis, um, um, and they enter specifically first into this growth phase where they get some um, uh, cofactors and um, growth proteins, uh, all of the machinery that is needed to help them um, double in size uh, in terms of their um, cytoplasm in terms of all of the supportive structures that they need. And so um, thinking about this phase, we can look at um, drugs that actually inhibit in this phase. Um, drugs that these are chemotherapy agents that can actually attack cells that are trying to um, go from the G1 to the S phase, the DNA synthesis phase, and interrupt this process. So cells collect things that... Um, uh, in this phase that will help in their DNA synthesis. One of them is a folate, and so there's a folate antagonist that will actually prevent the cell from collecting folate, and then you can't build your DNA, and if you can't build your DNA, you can't continue through this cycle. Purines, pyrimidines, these are all uh, related to DNA synthesis. So if we enter here into go into the DNA synthesis phase, so now here, from going from here to here, um, the cell has doubled the amount of DNA that it has made. Um, and once it has doubled the amount of DNA, it, it grows a little bit more because it actually has to assemble some machinery in order to... Um, uh, in order to complete the replication of the DNA and then also to think about um, being able to split itself into two. Um, that actually requires like a scaffold, sort of like you see on buildings. Um, it requires the cell to assemble a scaffold to allow it to separate into two. And so um, the uh, agents, this is called M phase um, as it enters into mitosis. And so the, the scaffold is the, called the tubules or microtubules. And so there are antimicrotubule agents. One of them I'm going to highlight here for you is taxane because taxol, paclitaxol, as it is known as we call it, is a, um, one of our big drugs for ovarian and uterine cancers. Um, it is also um, known to patients because they lose their hair. Um, it's temper, and it can cause that neuropathy that Dr. Alvarez was talking about. Neuropathy and hair loss um, um, are sometimes reversible after stoppage of the drug, but sometimes, well, hair loss is always reversible. Your hair will grow back. But the neuropathy piece, sometimes it can do permanent damage to the terminal nerves in your fingers. Then... Uh, topoisomerase. Oh, yeah, these are some of these are interesting, too. So one of the other things that you have to do once you bunch the DNA up, you have to also unwind it. And so topoisomerase um, functions to unwind the DNA in order to allow the DNA to split from each other. And so some of the uh, some drugs um, act specifically to inhibit that action. And then... Um, there are some kinds of drugs that are listed here in the middle that either affect multiple phases of the cell cycle or don't really care where the cell is in its cycling. Um, nitrogen mustard is one of, a very old chemotherapy agent, and it's kind of famous for um, its role in uh, chemical warfare. Um, and um, and uh, one of our other drugs, platinum, carboplatin, um, seems to act in a cell cycle independent way. Um, it's damaging to the DNA and uh, doesn't necessarily re require the cell to be in a certain phase for it to act. Um, and these are called alkylating agents. 
Any questions about any of that? Yes, sir. Are these selected in any way, like the platinum Um No. You mean, uh, so uh, the question is, are, actually, are any of these chemotherapeutics selective? Um, you have to have a transporter. There are some, once of, sometimes cells have drug transporters that will toss drugs out of the cell. That's usually a mutation that happens in cancer cells, honestly, as a way to become chemotherapy resistant. Normal cells tend to take these drugs up. Um, the, the issue is, and one of the reasons why normal cells are not affected in the same way as lots of cancer cells, is cancer cells are rapidly dividing. Um, and so they're going through this cycle much, much faster than normal, um, normal cells are. Um, and so the ability of chemotherapy to hurt a cancer cell um, who is expo- you know, exposed in this phase or in this phase a lot longer, whereas a lot of normal cells, like our nerve cells, for example, are oftentimes sitting in a G0 phase um, and not really susceptible to any of these chemotherapy agents, or not as susceptible anyhow. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yes, ma'am. So are you talking, since you have cells in all stages to help one so you give a combination of all of these all at once, and do you give an antidote at the same time, or is it just that the dose wears off? You're asking excellent questions. So the question is a little bit related to how often we give chemotherapy, whether or not there are antidotes to chemotherapy, and how many of the drugs are given. And that answer varies widely for cancer overall. So leukemia, if, uh, is a, uh, leukemias are a good example of, dr- of, um, of a type of cancer that is treated with up to five chemotherapy agents at one time. Um, in gynecologic cancers and a lot of solid tumors, um, two to three chemotherapy agents tends to be the most that is used, or else you get toxicities that are too high. So similar to the radiation oncologists who are always thinking about how much can I give to kill the cancer and not kill the person. Um, we, with chemotherapy, are always thinking about that question, and toxicity is a big um, plays a big role in how we think about that. Um, so for gynecologic cancers, our two most important drugs are carboplatin or our cisplatin, which is an older version. It's a platinum agent. And then the taxane, ta- paclitaxel. And those two are tend to be the backbone of most treatments. And then a lot of times additional targeted agents are added to that backbone. Targeted agents, as you'll see, because they're targeted means they're not affecting the intestinal cells. They're not affecting the cells in your mouth that might give you mouth sores. They're not affecting the, they, they're, they're targeted to the tumor, and so then the toxicities of those tend to be a little bit less. And can, they can be added without too much additional side effects for the patient to a backbone of chemotherapy. Um, and then in terms of antidotes, there are sometimes, for example, um, some of the folate antagonists, um, one that we use for a type of um, cancer that's one of Dr. Chen's personal favorites, if we have favorite cancers, is um, gestational trophoblastic disease. <laughs> gestational trophoblastic disease. I mean, she mentioned it as a parenthetical in our beginning. But um, we use a drug called methotrexate. And methotrexate, sometimes when it's given in very, very high doses, we do um, give people some um, anti, some an antidote, uh, so to speak, to help replenish the folate, or to prevent 
other cells from having um, from having the same toxicity from the methotrexate. Yes, sir. Nitrogen mustard. So that's the gas that the soldiers in the previous wars had been exposed to. I believe so. Although you are now, so the nitrogen mustard, the gas. Okay. Yes. I was going to say you're asking me to remember my you my history. We're here to teach cancer. Yes, ma'am, in the back. So am I right in thinking that the, the best um, for eighty percent of patients, first line treatment is, is going to be successful, and that's always going to be platinum-based past Um eight. How, long, how many decades has that been the same first line of treatment? Um, the question is, how long has carboplatin and taxol been the first line of treatment for ovarian cancer or for all cancers? Thinking of ovarian cancer. Um, taxane, Dr. Chen will know better than me, but I believe it was paclitaxel in the 80s, late 80s? 90s. 90s. Paclitaxel was added to carboplatin or was compared to um, cytoxan. So platinum came out in the 70s. Platinum came out in the 70s. Combined with cy- cytoxan, which is a... Which was combined with cytoxan, which is a different kind of alkylating agent. The taxanes were studied in clinical trials in the 90s and incorporated as platinum taxane in the mid-90s, and then carboplatin replaced cisplatin in the late 90s. Okay, so she's the one who knows all the history of this. <laughs> um, so what that, just to, for the rest of the group so they can hear, so the um, cytoxan and carboplatin were kind of the, um, historical agents used for gynecologic cancers, and uh, sorry, excuse me, cisplatin and cytoxan were the two uh, drugs used historically. And then cytoxan cisplatin was compared with paclitaxel, and that uh, benefit of taxanes in gynecologic cancers was, was uh, very strong, and that came in the late 80s. And then towards the 90s, we actually um, demonstrated that cisplatin and carboplatin were probably equivalent in terms of. Um, uh, cancer sil- killing for gynecologic cancers, but carboplatin has the benefit of some um, decreased toxicity. One of the worst toxicities with cisplatin, especially at higher doses, is toxicity to the ear, and so um, hearing loss um, with cisplatin can happen, especially in the higher doses and with prolonged dosing. Do they get Exactly. And sometimes, Frank, so tinnitus, which is ringing in the ear, but I've seen patients um, rarely, thank goodness, very rarely, lose hearing, which is a terrible thing to lose. Yes, ma'am. So when these, I guess, drugs have come out, do you only find out the side effects of the combinations of them through clinical trials, or is it something that, you know, as they're creating this, they sort of can figure out? It's a good question. So the question is, how do we know what the toxicities of these drugs are? We are alerted to the fact of some toxicities that you might be able to witness um, with um, mouse and animal models, for sure. Um, but in terms of, you know, first of all, we're not rice and, mice and rats. Um, people aren't. So we really only actually know how um, the drugs are going to behave in people when we do clinical trials. Um, that gets a little bit into discussion of how clinical trials are designed. There's a phase one trial, which is they use a dose escalation, and they're literally not even trying to figure out if the drug works at that point. They're just trying to figure out what are the tolerable doses in human beings, and they start collecting surveys of patients. They do tests to figure out what are the side effects that people experience. Yes, ma'am. 
I'm going to take this one first and then get you. Yes. I just wondered practically how much does insurance and direct plan dictate to a physician how they would prescribe chemotherapy? Uh, how much does um, insurance dictate the drugs that we prescribe? So we have the benefit of having national guidelines um, through the National Cancer Center Network, um, which goes through all of the available evidence, um, and they are updated um, uh, annually. Thank you. Um, and so they go. Th- that is a body that is entirely comprised of clinicians and scientists and has nothing to do with insurance or the federal government or anything like that. Um, and they just look at the evidence. And so um, it tends to be that the um, uh, federal government through the Medicare program will decide which things that they are going to cover based on the level of evidence. Um, and then most of the rest of the insurance companies follow suit. So for standard cytotoxic chemotherapy agents, um, we do have to go through an insurance authorization process. Um, but generally speaking, those are all covered by a patient's insurances. It's really truly the novel drugs um, that are very, very expensive that we sometimes have to um, if and, and that really should probably properly be given on a clinical trial. If we wanted to just try it as an experiment on somebody, we would have to make a good argument for wanting to do that. And as clinicians and scientists ourselves, we would actually have to make that argument to ourselves and to each other as to why we're going to use something so experimental that doesn't have evidence for it. But things that have evidence for it are generally covered by insurance as a general rule. So most of this would be... Correct. Covered by insurance. Yes, correct. Is there any regimen out there that would prevent you from recurrence happening or lengthening the period of remission? Lots of these regimens. So the question is, are there, are there any regimens out there that prevent recurrence or lengthen the time of remission? So um, lengthen the time of remission in clinical trials or in research studies is called progression-free survival. And then lengthen the time of survival is called overall survival. So these are two important endpoints that most clinical trials look at. They look at OS, overall survival, or PFS, progression-free survival, um, to show that it has a benefit. And in order for our FDA to approve a drug, they have to demonstrate that, uh, usually for an indication, a specific clinical scenario. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Is it possible to predict the incidence of reaction side, side effects in a particular patient, or is it totally is it possible to predict a reaction in a patient? Um, to some degree, yes. So patients who have diabetes, for example, and already have some potential for nerve damage are more likely to get neuropathy, as an, as an example. Um, some are much more rare and idiopathic and hard to predict. Okay, I'm going to keep moving. So we've talked uh, mostly because we're going to start running short on time. Um, uh, this slide, which um, maybe isn't projecting super well, talks about some of the common side effects of chemotherapy, which we've already kind of touched on um, here. So it's kind of a nice schematic, though, of the of the whole body. Um, 
the um, nails sometimes can, uh, I'm gonna, and I'm going to point out the ones that we see with carboplatin and taxol, so, uh, and, and actually some of our second-line chemotherapy um, agents. So sometimes the nail beds um, can have some peeling or there can be some discoloration of the skin. Um, the um, blood is a really big one that's affected by chemotherapy agents. So in addition to tumor cells, our chemotherapies also kill red blood cells and white blood cells, which means that people can sometimes become immune suppressed um, or anemic. Again, that's temporary. Once we stop the drug, the um, or if we put a hold on the drug for a period of time, then people, um, their blood counts in, in, go back to normal. Um, <clears throat> there is one drug that we give that can affect the heart muscle. That's called Doxel. And so we um, do testing to make sure people's heart muscles are not being affected um, by the drugs. Um, the GI system in, in radiation, we talked about sort of proctitis, which is like a bad diarrhea. Um, in terms of the um, chemotherapy agents, I have to say we actually see constipation probably equally as frequently as diarrhea, if not more, um, as a side effect. Um, which other big ones am I missing, guys? Um, in the mouth, mucositis, uh, which is mouth sores, can come um, and um, be... It's kind of like, um, what do we call them? Apthis ulcers is the medical word for it. Canker sores. There we go. Um, it's like a bad canker sore or a bunch of them. And then hair loss um, is another big one. Um, this is just a schematic that I thought was kind of nice to introduce the idea of why cancer might come back after chemotherapy. So if we think about, ideally, our cancer at the beginning is missing these red and these blue cells. And we've given a drug and we kill all the orange and the light blue and the green. And then once we're done giving our drugs, the cancer is completely gone and it will never come back. Um, but all too often, especially with our, uh, some of our advanced gynecologic malignancies, um, there are some cells that survive the drug. Um, they may only partially survive. They might be disabled in some way. They might sit quiescent for a matter of months or years. Um, but they might find a way to regrow, escape, and then form another um, tissue mass. Um, and so this kind of brings up the idea of um, some of our targeted agents and some of our immunotherapies, where we're trying to um, identify these cells that are going to become resistant to chemotherapy, what's different about them, and how we might be able to understand them more at a molecular level to actually... Um, um, kill these folks straight off before they become a big tumor cell recurrence mass. So that leads me into the discussion of immunotherapy. Um, so our immune system is an incredibly complicated system, and we are, with like nine minutes left here, we're definitely not going to be able to um, um, uh, cover it in anywhere fully. But I would like to at least introduce to you the idea that actually your immune cells, your immune system right now, for all of us who do not have cancer, is doing a very good job of killing off cells that are damaged in some ways that may have some precancerous or cancerous tendencies. And the way they do that is if you get a, if, and this is your cell, a cancer cell, that has a mutation. And that mutation is a weird protein that your body has never seen before. And so that protein, that weir weird protein now is expressed or presented on the surface of the cell. And your immune cell, your T cell, 
um, which normally does a lot of scavenging in the body and, and goes around and says, oh, that looks like me, oh, that looks like me, and lets that cell live, will uh, come into contact with a weird protein that it's never said but seen before, and it will say, that doesn't look like me, I better kill the cell. And so it will activate the immune system and call all its friends to come over to this weird new protein that's on the surface of the cell and say, this does not belong here. It's time for us to kill the cell. And away the cancer cell goes. And we never even develop a clinically detectable cancer because our immune system is doing a very good job of keeping that in check. So one thing that has come up in uh, recently in cancer research is actually finding ways to um, harness the immune system to come in and attack cancer cells. And one way we do this is with a drug called um, PD-1 inhibitors. So the way this generally works is this is your tumor cell, and this um, has a, uh, a flag on it. It's a PDL one And the PDL one um, is expressed, and actually we, some people I've heard describe this as the don't eat me signal. So the tumor cell is being really smart, and it knows that if it doesn't have that flag up, the immune system will recognize it and will kill it. And so this is one thing probably, as I spoke about very early, that in the cancer cells have to do is they have to find ways to evade the immune system. So this is its evasion technique. So even though this tumor cell has weird proteins on its surface that normally the T cell should say, hey, this looks really strange, we should get rid of this guy, the tumor cell has found it's a co-receptor. Um, turns out that the when the T cell sees this little flag on there, it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's fine. We're going to just let this tumor cell live. But um, the drug, this anti-PD-1 inhibitor, uh, so it's a PD-1 inhibitor, will actually occupy the receptor and now um, not allow um, the T cell to sort of engage with this flag anymore. And so by disengaging the T cell from this flag, actually now we're back into this situation where it's just the receptor and the strange protein and the T cell kills the cancer cell. Um, and, you know, so these are schematics and this is all very well and good, but this has been life-saving for melanoma patients, for example. Um, there have been, there are stories and there is research out there published of people who had metastatic melanoma, which is a deadly disease, whose tumors are going away and they're alive. And they're living well, well, well longer, and sometimes without disease at all. Um, and so we're also using this in our gynecologic cancers because I did speak to you at least briefly about, so remember this whole process actually takes a mutation, right? And so it turns out the cancers that are hypermutated, have tons and tons of mutations, are very susceptible to this kind of treatment. And gynecologic cancers, especially uterine cancer, we have a very high number of uterine cancers that have tons and tons of mutations and seem to be potentially um, susceptible to this kind of treatment. Um, so uh, research is ongoing as to whether or not this PD-1 inhibitor, um, there's a bunch of the different kinds of names, but just remember PD-1 inhibitor um, might actually um, improve um, uh, our outcomes in our uterine cancer patients. Ooh, this one's kind of complicated. Can I do it in five minutes? I don't know. Um, okay. Synthetic lethality. So we talked about BRCA mutations, right? BRCA mutations um, happen here. I'm going to start with here. BRCA mutations are defects in homologous recombination. 
So our cells have many ways under normal circumstances of repairing the normal errors that happen in the course of just normal functions. And homologous recombination is one of them. Our DNA can break for any kind of reasons. Now, um, we're going to back up here for a little second. So single strand and double strand breaks, there's, um, there's these two proteins. We're going to focus on this one called the PARP. The PARP um, assists in stalling your DNA. So this is, this is in the process of mitosis when you're doubling your, your DNA. It stalls the fork and helps make sure that you're not going through the process of replicating your DNA too quickly and not entering in too many mistakes. Um, the idea here is that for BRCA mutation carriers or for tumors that have BRCA mutations in them um, is a more accurate way of saying that. So a tumor that has a BRCA mutation, it, it can, it, this homologous recombination is broken. If you also inhibit the PARP, so you inhibit this fork stalling process, you are actually... Um, it's called a synthetic lethal partner. So those two combinations of things, one all by itself, PARP inhibition doesn't kill the cell. Sorry, PARP inhibition all by itself won't kill the cell. BRCA mutation all by itself does not kill the cell. You combine those two things together, the cell has no way of repairing its crappy DNA, its tumor-mutated DNA, and it enters into apoptosis. Does that make sense? I did that quick. Yeah? Okay. So synthetic lethality, the idea is that one problem is not enough to kill the cell. You have to enter in a second problem. So in our case, what we can do is we can harness the um, understanding of the BRCA mutation in a tumor cell, and if we add in an additional problem, we're going to inhibit the normal function of the cell. It's kind of a brilliant thing. We're going to break a second thing in the cell, and we are going to force the cell to become so damaged that it kills itself off. And so that's actually what happens. And, BR and PARP inhibitors are um, really showing a lot of promise in our BRCA um, carriers and in our BRCA mutated cancers um, to the point where there's FDA approval for two of them now in ovarian cancer and in many other cancers as well. This is a second way of saying what I just showed you, and I'll leave that up there for you guys to look. Um, last but not least, two minutes, I can do it. Um, bevacizumab, I promised we were going to talk about angiogenesis. So here's our tumor, and it starts secreting this, um, this uh, molecule that um, actually uh, tells a nearby blood vessel to grow branches on its tree. So I need food, come, come, come to me. <laughs> and um, so uh, that veg A here is... Um, uh, binding to this receptor here, and uh, then this bevacizumab drug interferes right here. So it binds to the signal. It prevents the signal being transferred from the tumor to the nearby blood vessel and, in essence, starves the tumor. Um, and we see that in um, cancers, actually. Bevacizumab all by itself doesn't really shrink tumors, or it might shrink it a little bit, um, but it certainly halts the growth. And so in combination with chemotherapy, uh, we've, seen, um, uh, we, we've definitely seen benefit for our patients with this kind of drug. Um, if we don't 
have bevacizumab, then this kind of you know very robust angiogenesis um, can happen. And in certain tumors, angiogenesis appears to be more important than in others. And so, um, you know, this is one of the things that we ha- think about as cancer researchers: is which drugs to apply in which situations and for which patients. So I will leave you with this: is a picture of me. A lot, long time ago, this Dr. Chen were operating, and um, and I would also like to just point out um, if you have since um, we're we're going to have a cancer literature class here pretty soon. Um, Atul Gawand writes beautifully about cancer, and if you haven't um, read his books, you should check them out. And thank you so much for your attention today. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.